Well, I really did it last week. I uh, struck a nerve, I guess, uh, judging by email traffic and uh, some of the discussions that I understand occurred in some of the uh, home Bible studies with regard to the future of Israel. It, uh, there were a number of you who wrote to me with questions and seeking clarification on some things. And uh, that's good. I really enjoy that. And uh, I think it's safe to, to uh, conclude that uh, people are interested in um, biblical prophecy. In fact, I was reminded here just a moment or two ago that when uh, week by week we open our home to the uh, college and career uh, age of this uh, fellowship and have dinner with them, the two topics that seem to come up most frequently are dating and prophecy. And uh, I don't know if they're trying to figure out that if the Lord will return quick enough, he'll save them the pain of dating or something. I, you know, maybe. So um, not wanting to bring a series on dating to you this morning, I decided to begin a series on prophecy instead. Okay. We've uh, we reached the end, really, last week of the heavy, heavy doctrinal section of the book of Romans. We've been at it for an awful long time. And we have essentially concluded through chapter 11. We left the doxology off, and I did that intentionally so that when we do come back, I will use that doxology as a means by which to summarize all that precedes it and then go back to the book of Romans in beginning in chapter 12. But what I want to do now is, is really take a very significant uh, detour, actually just kind of put the book aside for a while Maybe as much as for the whole summer, I don't know yet. That will kind of depend somewhat on you, I suppose, and the continuing email traffic that uh, these sermons generate. But uh, what I'm intending to do with you, at least for a couple of months, is to uh, begin a study of biblical prophecy together. We're going to use the summer months to do that and take a look at some of these things. It's really appropriate for us. To, uh, to look here at the mystery of God as it relates to his plan for the future. And there are some in the church today, though, that would regulate or relegate rather the study of prophecy to, to uh, something that they would call a secondary matter that is uh, of no significant value or purpose for the people of God, just a matter of curiosity or something like that. And, and, uh, they sort of support that notion with the idea that, that uh, prophecy is very confusing. There are very conflicting opinions that are out there. There's a lot of convoluted uh, thinking when it comes to this. And, and it just sort of leads to disruption, divisiveness, confusion among the people of God. And, and so they kind of take what one calls a pan-millennial view. That is, that it will all pan out in the end and uh, doesn't really matter. Um, but I don't, I don't think God agrees with that uh, idea at all. In fact, I'm positive of that. It says in 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete or adequate, equipped for every good work. All Scripture Inspired by God and useful, he says, that we might be equipped for every good work. 
Did you know that approximately 25% of all Scripture was prophetic at the time it was penned? Approximately a quarter of your Bible at the time it was written was of a prophetic nature. That is, that it spoke of truths that had yet to come to pass. Now, certainly, you know, a significant number of them have come to pass in the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it does not exhaust what the Bible has to say about Christ and about His work and His kingdom by any stretch of the imagination. And so, based on what Paul says in 2 Timothy, that the Scripture is profitable to us, and combined with the reality that there is so much written here about things to come, I think it's very appropriate for us. Very, very appropriate for us over these next months to examine these things. So, we're going to learn about seven prophetic events that await fulfillment. Seven prophetic events awaiting fulfillment so that we might understand the times and live accordingly. We might understand the times. So I've entitled this summer series, Things to Come. Things to Come. And what we'll do is we will go through these seven events together and kind of link this all now it's going to require um, it's going to require us to think. I've been turning this over in my mind all week long as to how to go about this, because there's an interconnectedness even in these events, and some of the events presuppose an understanding of an event that that occurs before. And uh, so I've listed them for you in your handout, and I've listed them chronologically. I've listed them chronologically, although. To understand these events will require some awareness, at least, of the other events. And that's kind of the problem with all of this. But I think that just the chronological approach is probably the, at least the best outline I could come up with. So that's the way I want to handle it with you. These seven prophetic events, I've listed them for you in your handout. They are the rapture of the church, the rise of the Antichrist, the retribution of God, the return of the King, the reign of the King, the rejection of or excuse yeah, the reign of Christ, the rejection of His rule, and the remaking of heaven and earth. Those are your seven events, okay? And that is their chronological order. The rapture of the church. The word rapture doesn't is not found in the Bible. Okay, it's not a Bible word. It actually, comes from the Latin, and it means to be caught up. To be caught up. It refers to the catching away or the snatching away or the removal of the church of Jesus Christ from the earth by the Lord himself. As I will attempt to demonstrate to you from the scriptures prior to a time of unprecedented judgment to fall upon this planet earth. We believe in a what's called a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. And so that is the position that we will seek to expound from the scriptures beginning next week. OK, so we will begin with the rapture of the church. We'll speak next about the rise of the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness or the man of sin 
Or as he's known in Daniel 7, the little horn. The little horn. And by the way, by necessity, as we go through these things, we're going to have to spend a fair amount of time in the Old Testament because the New Testament is just speaking about the fulfillment of the things that the Old Testament has long prophesied. We're going to become acquainted with the book of Daniel in the process of doing this. The little horn from Daniel 7, the rise of the Antichrist. That is that man, that world of figure who rises to prominence and sets himself against Christ and eventually enslaves the world to his demonically inspired rule. The man of lawlessness, the man of sin, the little horn of Daniel 7, the rise of the Antichrist. Third, the retribution of God. And you'll notice that we did manage to work ours in for all of these. And believe it or not, I didn't have to work very hard at it. It just kind of came. I think it was one I had to work on a little. But the retribution of God. Okay, the retribution of God. That's just another way to say the tribulation period. Presumably, this is a little familiar to you. The Bible speaks about a seven year tribulation. That is a period of time upon this planet for a period of seven years. Went through a series of seals, trumpets and bowls, as outlined in the book of Revelation, chapters six through 19, that God pours out judgment on this planet. They fall like hammer blows of increasing severity until he crumbles the kingdoms of this world in anticipation for the establishment of the kingdom of his Christ. So the tribulation period, the retribution of God, it's a time really, if you want to look at it this way, when all of the grievances that have been accumulated begin to be punished. How often have we thought or said, why, do, why does God not do something about this? He allows this evil to go on and on and they store up wrath for themselves. When is it going to fall? Well, it is going to fall, beloved. And it is going to fall at such intensity that the people will cry for the rocks to fall on them and cover them from the wrath of the Lamb. The retribution of God. That sets up this fourth event, the return of the King. The return of the King. Just as assuredly as Jesus Christ came that first time, He is coming again. He is coming bodily to this earth. He is going to establish His kingdom here. And He will rule, and I'll just tell you now, it will be from Jerusalem and He will rule over this planet. He came the first time as a suffering servant. He came as the, lion, or the Lamb of God. He comes the second time as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He rules with a rod of iron. It says that, the, that his eyes burn with an intensity of fire. He is a judge to be feared. And he will come and establish his righteous reign. The return of the king. Followed by the reign of Christ or the reign of that king. In which all of the longing of the Old Testament people of God, the prophets that continually foretold a time of peace and prosperity and blessing upon this planet, it will come. Revelation chapter 20 tells us that it will last a thousand years. There will be a millennium, a thousand year rule and reign of Christ very physically, very tangibly here upon this planet in which all who know the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will 
enjoy its blessings. Good times are coming. It's followed by the rejection of his rule. It's kind of amazing, but it does illustrate the depth of the sin of the human heart. Often people have said, I don't understand why Adam and Eve did what they did. I mean, they were in a perfect paradise. (coughs) I've even had people be so arrogant and bold as to suggest to me that if they'd have been there, they wouldn't have done it. Right. But the Bible tells us that at the end of this thousand year rule and reign of Jesus Christ in which sin has for all intents and purposes been banished upon which peace and prosperity, disease being banished, war is gone, famine has been alleviated, a righteous rule and when no longer do the wealthy receive one kind of justice and the poor another in which there is only justice for all mankind in which the Lord and Creator who can see into the human heart sits as judge judging and weighing the motives of the heart and thus dealing out punishment appropriate to the transgression. All of these longings are fulfilled and yet at the end of it all, humanity rises up in rebellion. They reject his righteous rule. There is a final rebellion. Satan, having been bound before the thousand year millennial reign, is released. He deceives the nation. They assemble together for the final rebellion They are destroyed and then begins what is known as the great white throne judgment in which all of those who have not been saved, not been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, that is Jesus Christ, the Savior, will stand before God as their judge and be cast into the lake of fire where they will eternally suffer torment. The rejection of his rule. And then finally, the remaking of heaven and earth. The Bible promises us that this planet, which will at at that point have been worn out, devastated by the judgments that have been poured upon it, will be entirely remade. Sin will be completely destroyed and eliminated. Death will be no more and will enter in what is known as the new heavens, the new earth, or the eternal state, or as some might call it, just heaven itself. The remaking of heaven and earth, the new heavens, the new earth, the entrance of the eternal state when God and man again can be together without the barrier of sin. Okay? That's where we're going this summer. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. Why these sermons? I'm going to preach you a sermon this morning answering your question, why preach a sermon? That's a valid question to ask, by the way. Why bother? Why preach these sermons? Why take up my summer with these sermons? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Because there are a number of reasons, and I've listed them for you here, and that's what I want to do this morning, is just talk a little bit about why a summer series on prophecy. What do we expect to receive from this? In what way will this be, as Paul says in Timothy, profitable to us? So we begin with our first reason. Number one, to educate so that we are not misled. 
to educate so that we are not misled. Because you know what? There's a lot of confusing information out there circulating around about prophecy and about the future and what's going to happen. Let me give you a couple of examples. I can vividly remember in the run-up to Gulf War One when news commentators were saying on somewhat of a regular basis, is this the build-up to the Battle of Armageddon? When they confront the armies of Saddam Hussein, do you remember this? In the deserts of Kuwait, is this going to be the Battle of Armageddon that will you know, bring about the end of the world? And I can remember news commentator after news commentator asking that kind of question. Revelation chapter 16, verse 16 refers to this and they say that they gathered together, they gathered them, that is the armies together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon, Armageddon. It is in the valley of Jezreel in northern Israel, the hill of Megiddo, where the Bible tells us there will be a great cataclysmic battle. But I can remember telling my children over and over again, this Gulf War I is not the battle of Armageddon. Well, how do you know, Dad? It's easy. Because the Bible says the battle of Armageddon occurs at the end of the tribulation. And as bad as you think your life has been, kids, it has not been seven years of tribulation. Okay? So it's absolutely not the battle of Armageddon. It could be World War III. I but it's not the Battle of Armageddon. Can't be. Just can't be. Besides which, since the pre-tribulational rapture of the church is true and the church is still here on earth, then clearly we cannot be in the tribulation. So not the Battle of, uh, not the Battle of Armageddon. Or how about this one? Just to get you, open your Bibles to uh, Matthew 24. Just a quick... This is just an illustration for you. Matthew 24, beginning of verse 40. If you're using a pew Bible, page 987. This is another illustration, I think, of the confusion that surrounds biblical prophecy. I can remember when I first became a believer back in the 70s, that people would refer to this passage all the time as proof for the rapture of the church. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 40. Matthew 24, 25, by the way, is what's called as the Olivet Discourse. This is where Jesus is speaking privately to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, answering certain questions that they've asked him about the end in his return. But there, beginning in verse 40, Matthew 24, it says, Then there shall be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Well, on its surface, that sounds like a nice proof text for the for the rapture of the church. Pay attention because you never know you're going to be there and then the guy next to you is going to be snagged away and you're going to be left. In fact, there was even a movie about such things. And uh, what was that called? The Trumpet's Call or something? I don't know. I can't remember. But it was a kind of a cheesy movie made in the 70s and whatever. There's a real problem with this interpretation, and that is it's uh, absolutely not what the text is talking about at all. If you look just at one verse above it, it says they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. 
It's speaking about Noah's flood. Now, if you know anything about your Bible at all, you know Noah's flood, which came upon the earth suddenly and took them away, took them away into judgment. Judgment. So, verses 41 to 42 here in Matthew 24 is not talking about removing the righteous from the wicked. It's talking about removing the wicked from the righteous. So in this passage, you want to be left behind. Okay? That's kind of the point. Alright? In this passage here, you want to be left behind. We, we, just, we need to take the time to let the text speak for itself and not superimpose some theological grid or system upon it and then hunt and peck our way through the Scriptures finding verses that seem to sound like the support for our ideas that we already have. We need to let the text talk, okay? So Matthew 24, 40 to 42, don't ever use that in support of the pre-tribulation rapture, okay? If you've done that before and you're guilty, and many of us are, don't do that anymore. Okay, go find somewhere else. All right, so to educate us so we're not misled, better move along here. To emphasize, number two, to emphasize our pilgrim status. Why study prophecy together? To emphasize our pilgrim status. Apostle Paul says, Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says, 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. We live today as the people of God in a battle, don't we? There is an ongoing battle, a day-to-day struggle against the pressures of life that seek to conform us to this world and its way of thinking. But the Bible calls upon us to live in a different way. The Bible says that we are not, our citizenship is not here. Our citizenship, if we know Christ as our Savior, our citizenship is in heaven with Him. And that we are now merely pilgrims, merely sojourners, merely aliens, living here for a time. But our future is with God in Christ. So that means that when we make plans and decisions... They should be made based on the life to come, not on the life here and now. And that's a struggle. That's a struggle because so much in us and around us is seeking to force us into thinking that this is all there is. That, you know, when you die, you're like a dog. That's it. Into the ground and you're no more. And so go for the gusto. Get everything you can. Live for today. And the Bible says you fool. You fool. We do not live for today. We need to be reminded the world is wicked and the world is growing more and more and more wicked day by day. And someday Christ is going to destroy the wickedness. And ultimately the world is well. And so don't invest here. Realize you're moving through. This is not your home. This is not your home. Third. Third reason to preach a series on biblical prophecy is to extol God's glory. To extol God's glory. That is to praise lavishly the glory of God. 
According to the Bible, God has temporarily granted a great measure of authority to Satan here and now in this world. Matthew chapter 4. Hopefully you're still in Matthew. So just turn back to your left. Chapter 4. If you have a pew Bible, I'm sorry I forgot to write the page number down. Just keep turning to your left until you get to number 4. Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. The temptation of Christ. Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, that is to Christ, all these things will I give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, Jesus responds to him here, and he does not respond to him by rebuking him and saying they are not yours to give. This is an empty promise. This is an empty offer. That's not his rebuke at all. He rebukes him, verse 10, Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The point that I want to make from this this morning, just very quickly, is, is that God in his mysterious purposes has temporarily given to or delegated to Satan a great measure of authority over this world. He is the God of this world, Paul says, Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. He is the God of this world. He, he could offer Christ the kingdoms because they temporarily are His. We're living in His realm. His domain. In fact, if you'll turn to your right, Colossians, well, you can turn if you want. I'll just read it. Colossians 1, verse 13. Conversion, Paul says, is a deliverance. He delivered us from the domain of darkness, the authority of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So we live in a time, an age, in which we live under the dominion of the evil one, Satan. The devil, Lucifer. He controls the kingdoms of this world. And it often appears that evil is winning the day, doesn't it? Doesn't it appear that way to you? When you read the newspaper, when you watch the news on TV or the Internet, or, or you just kind of look around, doesn't it appear to you like evil is winning the day and in fact getting stronger and stronger? Isn't that what you kind of see? I got great news for you. You ready for this? Here's the message of the Bible. In the end, God wins. God wins. This is one book you want to know the end of it. You want to know the end before you begin. The prophets are, are unanimous in their concurrence of this. God wins in the end. And by the way, that message is integral to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is integral because it, is the, it strengthens our faith and displays the glory of God for all the world to see. We preach a message not just of deliverance from the eternal wrath of God, but we preach a message that says that the Christ that is delivering us is coming again and ruling and He's going to squash all this evil and He's going to do what is right and this world is going to be the kind of place that God always designed it to be. That's compelling. 
That's inviting. That's a more fully orbed presentation of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. And beloved, it is absolutely implicit in the statement that we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ assures his eventual conquest. Let me show you how the Bible uh, focuses on this as a means of encouragement for the saints. Go to uh, way back to the back of the Bible, uh, Revelation chapter 19, page 1239, if you're using a few Bible. Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. If you were here a few years ago, we preached through the first couple of chapters of the book of Revelation, actually chapters 2 and 3, and we looked at the messages to the seven churches there. And those are real historic churches that were struggling there at the end of the first century and under an incredible amount of persecution and pressure. And this book was written to them and all who follow along behind them in order to encourage them to stand firm in the face of evil, manifest evil, and incredible pressure being brought to bear against them because of their faith commitment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this book has been given to us by the inspiration of God. It is the final book of the final prophet of God, John himself, who writes this book to encourage and strengthen the saints through the ages. So chapter 19 And after these things I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. For He has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality and has avenged the blood of His bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. The twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah! And a voice came down from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you His bondservants, you who fear Him, the small and the great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude and as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let's lavishly praise God in His glory, huh? Let's declare His victory. Our God is not an impotent God. Our God does not sit on the edge of heaven nibbling on His ancient fingernails, as it were, wondering, what am I going to do with this mess? Is there anything that can be recovered from this God, our great and sovereign Creator of heaven and earth, who called us all into existence by His spoken Word, in His due time will crush all rebellion and establish His kingdom and righteousness, which will prevail from sea to sea. This is the glory of God. And the study of prophecy extols that glory. Fourth. Fourth, we study prophecy together this summer 
to engender self-evaluation. To engender self-evaluation. I am firmly convinced that the neglect of the study of prophecy in the church of Christ has robbed the church of one of her more important motivations for holy living. This is a means, a God-given means, for the people of God to begin to live in accordance with the profession of faith that they make. That is, that they are a new creature in Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, the Bible says you are. But the church is rife with immorality. The church is weak. The church is carnal. The church is materially oriented, materialistically oriented. You read poll after poll and people express some sort of faith commitment to Christ, some sort of born again experience, and yet their morals and their lifestyles betray their words. We live in a generation in which those that claim allegiance to God live their lives as practical atheists. And I believe one of the reasons for that is because we have neglected the study of prophecy. God has given it to us to motivate our holy living. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. You don't have to turn there, I'll just read it to you. It's speaking about the conversion of the Gentiles, that is, the, the Greeks, the non-Jews, in the Greek city of Thessalonica. Verses 9 and 10. By the way, every chapter of 1 Thessalonians ends with a reference to the return of Christ. Verses 9 and 10, chapter 1, it says, For they themselves report about us, that is the apostles, what kind of a reception we had with you, Thessalonians, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul says one of the clear evidences of the conversion of these Greek pagans to the Lord Jesus Christ is that they turned to God from their idols and they began to serve the living and true God and they began to wait with an active anticipation for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. An active anticipation for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is my hope that as we study biblical prophecy together, that the Spirit of God will, inf- will fire up in you an active anticipation for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if He does, it will change the way you live. Turn to your right, page 1194 in a pew Bible, Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, after Paul speaks about how old men, old women, young men, young women are to behave in the church and what they're to be taught. He begins in verse 11 with an amazing statement here about the importance of the return of Christ to motivate such holy living. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us 
to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Verse 13, notice it. Looking for what? Speak to me. The blessed hope appearing. Appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When we are looking for the return of Christ, actively looking for it, it will change the way we live. It will purify us. 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. When we fix our hope on the return of Jesus Christ, it changes the way we live. Those earlier letters I referred to in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, letters to the seven churches, over and over again it says, He who has ears to hear, let him what? Let him hear. Each one of the letters was written so that all the churches might profit from them. And all churches, by the way, down through the ages. I don't have time to take you there again and show you all that. You can go on the internet and website, download all those sermons and listen. But I'll give you one, just one illustration. Revelation chapter 3, verse 11 to the church at Philadelphia. He says to that church, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have in order that no one take your crown. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast. Question. Do you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ could return at any moment? Do you believe that? If you were to return, what would he find you doing? If you were to return today, what would he find you doing? What would he find you thinking about? Where would your priorities be? This is a real and serious matter. Oh, you know, it's been 2,000 years. He hasn't come. He's not coming today. And I doubt he's coming in my lifetime. No. No man knows the time. No man knows the time. But the Bible is clear that for all saints of all the ages, we are to live in the light of the reality that it could be now. There is nothing that has to happen first before Christ comes for His church. All that needs to happen has happened. We are living on the edge of eternity. It's my hope that this study will prompt all of us to live more consciously in light of that significant reality. Fifth. Somebody get going here. Fifth. Fifth reason to preach this sermon. 
to emasculate our fear of the future. I had to look for that one, Vince. But I liked it. Once I found it, I liked it. To emasculate our fear of the future. To strip it of its strength. To make it impotent. We live in difficult times, beloved. We live in very uncertain times. It appears to me that our politicians and the various news outlets are profiting from the promotion of that uncertainty. Politicians are preying on people's fears in order to justify their growing intrusion into the private sector. And the news outlets are complicit in going along with it because it sells newspapers. There is fear-mongering going on. That's what I'm trying to say. Because there's money to be made in fear-mongering. It's bad out there, for sure. But there's this continual undercurrent of things are coming apart. The wheels have fallen off, right? Life as we have known it is going to be no more. How many people kind of sense some of that, huh? And that can produce fear in our heart. Fear of the future. Fear of the, the unknown. 2,600 years ago, the Jews were facing imminent military defeat and deportation out of their homeland. They had been living in contradiction to the Word of God for a long time. They had been shaking their fist in His face. They had been warned over and over again and they had refused to heed the warnings. And so on the, on the horizon there was building this cloud of judgment by the name of Babylon, ancient Iraq. And so God, in the face of this terrifying prospect for His people, caused one of His prophets by the name of Jeremiah to take up his pen and to write to his people. And he wrote to his people prophecy. Prophecy that looked into their future and spoke to them about that which was to come. And it spoke of their temporal captivity. And yes, the Babylonians were going to come and destroy and sweep away the Davidic kingdom for a time. And the prophet looked even beyond that and spoke of a future time coming even more terrifying and terrible than that. But he also spoke of a time when God would relent. When God would turn back to His people with mercy and favor. When God would bring them back and they would be His people and He would be their God. Jeremiah chapter 30 Page 786, Jeremiah chapter 30. Just listen to a few of the words of the prophet beginning in verse 1. Jeremiah 30, beginning in verse 1, page 786. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. 
Now, these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all their faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great, and there is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he will be saved from it. And it shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck and will tear off their bonds and strangers will no longer make them their slaves. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. And fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, and do not be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return and be quiet and at ease, and no one shall make him afraid. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you, for I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you. Only I will not destroy you completely, but I will chasten you justly and will by no means leave you unpunished. Turn over to chapter 31, verse 31. Same context, by the way. And the prophet writes there, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. I won't take the time to read it, but if you finish out the chapter, he says this promise is as absolutely sure as the sun rising tomorrow morning. It will come to be. Biblical prophecy emasculates our fear of the future. It removes the uncertainty from it all. It helps us to step back from the press of the daily news cycle and allow us to get a perspective of reality from the God who sits above it all and says, yeah, it's bad and it's going to get worse. But I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I will not abandon you. I am not losing the fight. God says. Fear not, O Israel. I would say, fear not, O Christian. Christ is absolutely in control. Sixth, we study prophecy to enliven our prayer life. To enliven our prayer life. To give it life. How many in here are satisfied with their prayer life? Think you pray enough? Good. At least you're honest. Okay? I don't believe any of us are ever satisfied with that, are we? When Jesus' disciples asked Him to teach them to pray, Matthew 6, you realize one of the first things that He taught them to pray 
was to request that the kingdom of God would come to earth, would be established on earth, right? Our Father who art in heaven, holy be your name, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Where? On earth, just as it is in heaven. Fascinating. Teach us to pray, the disciples say in Luke. And Jesus says, I'll teach you to pray. You pray that the kingdom comes to this earth and is established here. What kingdom? The kingdom that the prophets have been talking about for millennia. Go all the way to the end of your Bible. Just before the concordance and maps. Okay? Or whatever other paraphernalia you have back there. To Revelation chapter 22. The last chapter of the last book and the next to the last verse of the last chapter of the last book. The prophet John writes, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Jesus says, I am coming quickly. Amen. Look at his prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. You have said you will come and you will do these things. Come. Come. The more we learn about the things to come, the more we will be able to pray in accordance with God's will. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth, just as it is always done in heaven. The more you understand what the Scriptures tell us is going to come, the more you can pray in exact conformity with the very will of God. And when your prayer locks into the will of God, you can in absolute confidence know what? He answers. Answers. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Finally, quickly, to energize, or excuse me, to encourage us to invest in eternity. Number seven, to encourage us to invest in eternity. Jesus teaching in Matthew six. I want to even turn you there. Matthew six. It's familiar to you. He's teaching on the topic of the coming kingdom. He says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your hearts be also. A, a heightened awareness of the things to come encourage us, encourages us to invest in eternity. We've all been given by God a measure of time, talent, and treasure, right? The question is, what do we do with it? Do we squander it on ourselves? Do we hoard it against some future date? Or do we biblically invest it? Do we invest it? You know one of the reasons that you need to be here every week? Except when you can't. Is because you, you need to hear the preaching of the Word. You need to be exhorted. You need to be encouraged. 
Right in the Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, 25, he says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of son, but encouraging one another and all the more. Listen to this. All the more you need to be in church. All the more. As you see the day drawing near. Interesting, huh? As you see the day drawing near. As you sense that the end is is fast approaching. All the more, the writer says, you need to be here. Not out there, here, where we can encourage each other mutually to invest our lives in eternity. Eight. Eight and final. To energize our evangelism. A right understanding of the things to come will energize our evangelism. If we really believe the end is near, And if we really believe the Scripture is true with regard to the certainty of judgment, right? It is appointed unto men to die, what? Once. And then, judgment. If you really believe that, and you believe the end is close at hand, then we will be serious about telling other people that they can be saved in Jesus Christ. It it lends a sense of urgency to our evangelism. Oh, there's undoubtedly more, beloved, but that's enough for... This morning, huh? There's plenty of reason for us. Plenty of reason. Let me just say this as I close. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you're not certain about your personal future. If Christ were to return right now and and take away His church back to be with Him in glory, and you're not sure what would happen to you, then you ought to become sure. And you can be sure. I'd be happy to speak with you. There are many others here. We'd be happy to speak with you, open the Bible with you, and show you how you can know Jesus Christ personally as your Savior, your Lord. Don't be in the midst of a really confusing and murky world. So many voices screaming at us, yelling at us, seeking to distract us. Lord, we live in time, even with the this tremendous recession that's going on, we still live in a time of unprecedented prosperity. And so, our Father, there are so many things that can drown you out, as it were. We become fearful. We become confused. We become lethargic. Oh, Lord, I pray that even now, this day, that you would rekindle within your people a passion and a desire for Christ and for His kingdom. That you would create within us an anticipation and excitement to go through this study together and to see what your word has to say. And Lord, I pray you would grant us believing hearts. Humble us, our Father, before your word like a little child that we could receive that which you have told us. And sometimes, our Father, we confess even now, it, it seems so fantastic as to be beyond anything that we can imagine. And indeed, Lord, it is. Because you are beyond anyone we can imagine. You are God above. And there is none like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Ron, we'll just close quickly. If we could, I did it again, didn't I? I'm sorry, folks. (laughs) Would you please?